Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 90. We are continuing our study through a selection of psalms through the course of the summer, and this morning we will be looking at all 17 verses of Psalm 90. Please give your attention to God's Word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Several years ago, a movie came out that was called In Time. It had a very interesting premise to it. It takes place about 150 years in the future. And in that age, people are genetically engineered so that they live well and healthily up to the age of 25. But when they hit age 25, there is a clock, a digital clock, embedded in their arms that begins a countdown of one year. And if nothing else intervenes at the end of that one year when the clock runs out, they drop dead. In that culture, money doesn't mean anything. In that culture, the currency is time. And the powers that be control the time. And the people that are wealthy hoard the time, they store it up, and even though it can be transferred to other people, they hoard it selfishly and they practically become immortal. On the other hand, the vast mass of humanity lives in poverty and they only live with one day's left of time. They will work all day so that they can get another day's time to live. And so they literally are living hand to mouth. Not a very good movie, artistically speaking. Not well done. But the premise of it is fascinating. 
And I wish they'd made a better movie based on a good premise. But it does beg the question for us, what if the Lord had created us with an expiration date? What if you had a digital clock on your arm that counted down how many years, how many months, how many weeks, how many days you have left before you die? How would that change the way you live? How would it change the way you look at today and tomorrow, next year, 10 years? In verse 12, the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. It's very much the same point. Teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. We can't know how much time we have left. We may have decades. We may have years. We may have hours. We don't know. God did not reveal to us what our expiration date is. But what this psalm is trying to get across to us is one of the life's most important lessons, is that we need to understand that our days on this earth are precious and few. And we need to view them from the perspective of eternity. That's what this psalm does. It takes however much time we have on this earth and puts it in the perspective of an eternal God. And it's only with that comparison between our short, fragile life and the eternality of the God that we love and serve that we can find our meaning and purpose. Psalm 90 is titled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. As we've said before, these titles to the Psalms aren't part of the original text. They were added later. We don't consider them inspired of God directly like the rest of the text is. But usually, we trust them as being reliable information about where the Psalms came from. And there's a lot of internal reasons in terms of the content of the Psalm that fit with both what Moses has written earlier and with his life that give conservative scholars anyway a lot of confidence that yes, this was a psalm written by Moses. And matter of fact, it's the only psalm in the entire Psalter that is attributed to Moses. He did write a couple of other songs that we have back in the Pentateuch, but in the Psalter, this is the only psalm that is said to have been written by Moses. Once you think about Moses' life, it makes a lot of sense that he would be the one who wrote this. Moses had an interesting calling, an interesting ministry. And we're going to look at the book of Numbers just in, as kind of a quick overview. And that records basically the time from the Exodus to the end of Moses' life. And what was interesting is that early on, when Moses finally got around to accepting his call to be the mediator of the Old Covenant, to be the leader of God's people, to lead God's people out of slavery, he had tremendous success initially. I mean, he took on Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler on earth, and defeated him by the power of God. He led all of God's people out of bondage and slavery through the Red Sea, parted the Red Sea by the power of God, led them to Mount Sinai, met with God face to face, so to speak, and received the very law of God to give to his people. But then if you look at the book of Numbers from chapter 13 to chapter 20, everything goes downhill for Moses. 
Because what happened in chapter 13 is that after having led the people to the very edge of the promised land, if you remember, the Israelites refused to enter. They refused to fight the giants in the land. They did not have faith in the Lord's promise to give them a land. And so the Lord disciplined them and punished a generation and said that that generation of adults over the age of 20 would not be allowed to enter into the promised land. They would die in the wilderness. I didn't want you to just think about that for a minute. Moses oversaw the death of over a million people in the wilderness. That's what scholars estimate how many adults were over the age of 20 when the punishment came down. A million deaths over a 40-year period that Moses oversaw. That's a lot of funerals. Then, if you come to chapter 20, this was the death chapter for Moses. At the beginning of the chapter, it opens up by saying that his sister Miriam dies and is buried. And then the middle of the chapter is when Moses is instructed to speak to the rock so that fresh water would flow for the people of God to have a drink in the wilderness. But instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it twice. And God punished him by saying, you, Moses, are going to die in the wilderness too. You're not going to be able to lead the people into the promised land. And then the chapter ends with the death of Aaron, Moses' brother, Moses' spokesman. And so if he wrote, and a lot of scholars think he wrote it around this same time because he's just overwhelmed with death. You can't imagine. None of us have experienced death to the level that Moses would have in his ministry. He's overwhelmed with the reality of death and the frailty and, and, and brevity of human life. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes this in chapter 7, verse 2. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Which would you rather go to, a funeral or a birthday party? A funeral or a wedding? A funeral or a church picnic? The writers of Ecclesiastes say, oh, you may have more fun at these celebrations, but you're going to gain a lot more wisdom at the funeral. And wisdom is what is, is eternal. You learn a lot by contemplating death. As a matter of fact, I believe that Psalm 90 was written to prepare us to face death. So many people, when somebody that they love, somebody close to them dies, they're not prepared for it, and it takes, and, and, and they'll lose months, years in grieving because they were not prepared to face the death of the loved one. Psalm 90 is given to prepare us so that when we go to the house of mourning, when we go to the funeral, we will have the eternal perspective that will enable us to stand firm in faith. And, you know, I've said before that we insulate ourselves from death more than any culture that's ever lived on the face of the planet. You know, death doesn't happen in our living rooms like it did in former generations. Death doesn't happen out in the, in the cornfield like it did in former generations. You, didn't have, you don't have your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents living in the same complex or at least the same town with you so that you saw their deaths like you used to. Death happens away in the hospital. Death happens in the nursing home. We try to keep ourselves from facing it as much as possible. But, you know, I was thinking about this this week because you think about the movies that are so popular in our culture, the TV shows. 
we watch thousands upon thousands of people die every month on television, virtually. We experience the death of so many people. And our culture is so drawn to viewing death. And you got to say, why? And I, the only explanation I could come up with is that we have to process it somehow. It's so real. It's so there. It's such an ominous presence in our lives that we have to address it. And so our means in this culture is to, to address it virtually and kind of experience what death feels like, what it looks like, even graphically. But then we can turn off the television or leave the movie theater and go back to life as normal. We think we're dealing with it. We're not. Psalm 90 deals with it. How do we face death? By faith in the Lord. Do you notice that Psalm 90 begins with a statement of faith? Moses expresses a longing to embrace the eternal. And that's what death will do to you. Realizing how fragile life is, you want to embrace what's eternal. And that's what he's crying out for. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God, you are eternal. You have no beginning. You have no end. You're infinite in your being. I need a being like that in my life right now because everything that I hold dear seems so fragile. Moses says he wants to dwell in the eternal God. We talked about that last week in Psalm 91. We want to dwell in the Lord, to abide in the Lord. That's where we find our security and find our contentment and peace is dwelling in the Lord. Have you ever been, maybe when you were a child, if you were foolish like most of us were when we were children swimming, and you get too far out into the lake, too far out into the swimming pool, too far out in, off the shore at the beach, and you suddenly realize you can't reach bottom and you can't get back. Do you, you have that panic feeling? You, you, you even feel yourself slipping below the surface of the water, and you keep hoping, you keep stretching with your toes, hoping you hit the, the bottom and it's not there, and you're not sure you're going to be able to get back to the top. You're not sure you're going to be able to get back to the shore. That's the fear that Moses is feeling in the face of death. He's like, I, I need something to put my feet on. I need something that doesn't move. I need something that's secure, that's there. And so he says, Lord, you've been the dwelling place of your people from generation to generation. You're eternal. You're everlasting from everlasting to everlasting. I need to hold on to you, Lord, because you're the only thing that isn't fragile in my life at the moment. So what do you see when you dwell in the Lord? When you kind of, in a sense, by faith, you step out of space and time, and you dwell in the eternal God, and then you look back at space and time, what do you see? Well, Moses makes two very simple elementary statements, points, that are so elementary and yet so profound. The first point that he makes is that life is very short from an eternal perspective. Life is very short from an eternal perspective. Look at verse 3. He begins by talking about the entrance of death. Death came into the world at that moment when God cursed his creation. And he's referring to that. Moses wrote about this originally. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. He wrote about the beginning of time, the beginning of creation. 
And he wrote about this moment when death entered in, when he says, you return to man, O dust, and say, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. He's the one who wrote about what God said to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the Garden of Eden. When he said to them, you will return to the ground since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Now think about that. Mo Moses is thinking about the book of Genesis. Again, he wrote it. God gave him the privilege of writing the book of Genesis. He's remembering what he wrote about. And he's thinking about the beginning of time. He's thinking about when Adam and Eve sinned and, and the curse was placed upon the creation and death entered into the world. But notice he, again, he next talks about a thousand years. And why does he bring up a thousand years? As well, it's because he's thinking about the lifespan of human beings at the beginning. Even after sin came into the world, even after death came into the world, human beings lived almost a thousand years. Go back to the book of Genesis and you'll see that Adam lived 930 years, Seth lived 912 years, and of course Methuselah almost hit 1,000, 969 years. And so Moses was given the ominous job of recording human history from when men lived almost 1,000 years down to what he's saying in my day, if you live 70 years, that's great. If you live 80, if you're really strong, you live to 80, that's especially blessed. You see why I'm saying that Moses dealt with death more than most of us have had to deal with death. But then he says, even if we still live that long, even if you live 969 years, what is that in the light of eternity? He says, a thousand years to God are just like yesterday. To him, if we think back a thousand years, to God that was yesterday. Think about what the world was like a thousand years ago. Think about how much has changed in a thousand years. A thousand years ago, there was only one church. The Reformation wouldn't happen for another 500 years. A thousand years ago, the Holy Roman Empire dominated the European continent. A thousand years ago, America was still 500 years from being discovered. A thousand years ago, was the time of castles and kings and knights, and the Crusades had not even been launched yet. You know what the most ominous invention in the century a thousand years ago was? Gunpowder. Changed the world as we know it. But that was the big invention. That was like yesterday to God. Matter of fact, he even goes on to say, even shorter than that, of course it's shorter than that to God, because he goes, he says, it's like a watch in the night. Do you know how long a watch in the night was? They divided night, the, the Jewish people divided the night up into three sections of four hours each. So a watch, one watch of the night was three hours. In four sections of three hours, yes. So that was a watch. So that is the span of time that Moses is thinking of. That's how long it is. And he's not just talking about hours in the middle of the day. He's talking about hours at night. How quick do the hours in the middle of the night go when you're sleeping? That's why he says it's like a dream. You know, it's like gone in a flash. It's just a puff of smoke and it's gone to God. That's an eternal perspective. In verse 5, he says, you sweep them away as with a flood. He's talking about human beings. 
Human beings are gone like a flood. The images of helplessness in the face of an unstoppable, overwhelming force. It's about 15 years ago that that tsunami hit in the area around Indonesia, India, that area. And I'm sure we all, you know, remember the video of that when the 100-foot wave came crashing into the shore. And there was one video in particular that I always remember because it was this calm, peaceful uh, resort city on, on the shore. And people were sipping cocktails and, and sitting in their, their expensive cars. And, and you know, and it, just, it was a picture of prosperity on earth. And then this 100-foot wave comes sweeping through. And in seconds, it's all gone. That's what Moses is saying. From God's perspective, that's how quick your earthly existence is. He says that human life is like the grass that is renewed in the morning. And that's, that's a, 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 an image that is often used in Scripture to talk about how brief our lifespan is. How often do you read in Scripture that we're like the grass of the field, here today and gone? And actually, he expands on it, the idea of the morning grass, that in, in the dry Judean uh, uh, countryside, you, you would see a lot of brown normally. But if there was maybe a heavy rainstorm the night before or the day before, you'd wake up in the morning and there'd be a lot of new, lush, green grass around. And you'd say, wow, that's great, green grass. I haven't seen that for a long time. But then the heat of the day would come and, and dry it up and it'd wither and it'd be brown. You know, it goes that quickly in that culture. And that's what he's comparing life to. And it's, it's that idea that we have these new beginnings, you know. We wake up and think, okay, I've got a new day. I've got a fresh slate. It's going to be different. Things are going to be better. I've got New Year's Day, I'm going to make all these resolutions. This year's going to be different. It's a new day. Yeah, my first marriage didn't work out, but I have a new wife now. This marriage is going to be much better. My job, my old job stunk, but man, I've got this new job, and it's going to be great. We have all these hopes for new beginnings in this life, but ultimately it all withers, dries up, and fades away. That's the image that he's putting in front of us. He ends with that phrase, fading and withered. And that is what human life is like. Some of you that have been around a long time, like me, you know that life increasingly, it's just, you're, that's who you are. You're faded and withered. You're, 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 you're fading away. You're withering like the grass at the end of a long, hot day. This is an old man's perspective. That's one of the fascinating things about time is how subjective our perception of time is. You know, when I was 15 years old and a teenager and looking forward to to getting out of my parents' house and owning a car and going to college and getting married and getting a job and buying my first house and had all this future ahead of me, when I was 15 years old, 10 years to the future seemed like an eternity. I thought, 25? Man, you know, I'm going to be so old in 10 years. But when you hit 55 or 65 and you think back 10 years ago when you were 45 or 55, it's just like yesterday. I mean, 10 years goes like that when you're looking backwards in reflection instead of forward in anticipation. And that's the perspective of Moses as he writes this song. But he goes on to say that it's not the brevity and fragility of life that is our biggest problem. Did you hear in this this psalm what is the biggest problem with life on this earth? Is that life is very, very hard. It's very, very short. 
but it's also very hard. Life under the sun is very hard. Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Moses is stating here what should be obvious to anybody, but is only truly obvious to those whose eyes have been opened by the, the Holy Spirit, which is to see that this earth is under a curse. The human beings have sinned, and the, God has placed this world under a curse, and we live out our days under the wrath of God. It is plainly obvious that this world is not what it should be. So much pain, so much suffering, so much alienation. Everything is broken. But Moses states clearly in verse 8 the reason why we die. God is the one who said that we would go back to dust. And it was because of his wrath over our sin. He says in verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Now, be careful not to read tone into this. Moses is not complaining. He is recognizing that God's wrath is a just wrath. He's just stating reality. We have sin, both in terms of the obvious sins that other people can see, but he even speaks of the secret sins that only God can see in the depths of our soul. And then in verses 9 and 10, he gives that perspective of the old man again. 70 or 80 years full of trouble and sorrow, and then he says, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. That's, that's an aged person speaking there is that my, my life is going out with a whimper, going out with a sigh, a groan as you get up out of the chair, or a groan as you get into the chair. Our lives end with a sigh. Moses is embracing the truth head on here that life is very hard and then you die. It's the perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes, which says, under the sun, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is such a major theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is that death is what makes this life meaningless. Death takes away everything that we value. Death makes everything that we've accomplished meaningless. And so we need to cry out to God. We need to, to reach out for something, someone who is eternal, who is unchanging, when everything else is fading away. And so he teaches us to pray at the end of this psalm. Last week in Psalm 91, we said that we face our fears of suffering by dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, in the words of Psalm 91. Making him our refuge and our fortress. We deal with our fears of anything in life, but especially the fear of death by dwelling in the Lord. It's how you do it. You dwell in the Lord. Abide in him. Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And we will be connected to the eternal. You know, the great truth of scripture is that this world is under the curse of God. The wrath of God ominously hangs over this fallen world. But the way to escape God's wrath is not to run away from it. Although that's what most people try to do. 
The way to escape God's wrath is to run to God for it to, to be our shelter. Because he offers a shelter in his son, Jesus Christ. You know, we abide in him by, as we said last week, using the means of grace that he has given to his people to draw near to him. Being in his word, knowing the scriptures, studying the scriptures, not in just an academic way, but in a very personal way, as a love letter written to you from the God who created you and the God who has redeemed you through the blood of his son. Be in the word, cry out to him in prayer, which is another means of grace, of drawing near to him, of embracing what's eternal, and then sitting at the Lord's table to receive the blessing of the fellowship of the saints and the fellowship with your Lord Jesus Christ. These are the means of grace by which we dwell in the Lord. And it is there that we enable ourselves to face death. Moses' eternal perspective gives him a prayer for four things. we got four things that he teaches us to pray for. The scriptures teach us how to pray. We always say that. How do we pray, Lord? Here, Moses teaches us how to pray. First of all, he tells us to pray for wisdom. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know what wisdom is? Wisdom is not being smart. That's a mistake they make over at the university all the time. Wisdom is not being smart. Wisdom is seeing yourself and the world from God's perspective. That's what wisdom is. It's seeing yourself and the world around you from God's perspective. And so when Moses says, pray that the Lord will teach us to number our days, that we might get a heart of wisdom, again, that's what he's asking for us, that we would be given that eternal perspective that belongs to God. You know, the book of Proverbs says that wisdom comes from what? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins. Because you recognize that you're a sinner and you live in a cursed world under the wrath of God. And so wisdom says, I fear the Lord. I fear his wrath. So I'm going to run to him to accept the one means of shelter that he has provided through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm going to hide under the cross from the wrath of God because there is where the Son of God bore the wrath of God that my sins deserve in my place. That is my shelter. That is my refuge in the face of all suffering, but especially in the face of death. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, in that sense, we live in the most intelligent culture, the most knowledgeable culture that has ever existed on the face of the planet, but we live in the midst of one of the most foolish cultures that has ever existed on the planet. You know, we will look back in all of our our intelligence and sophistication, we'll look back at earlier cultures or more primitive cultures and we'll look at pagan tribes that are offering animal sacrifices and, and possession sacrifices and even human sacrifices. Why? Because they believe that their gods are angry and they need to be satisfied with a sacrifice. And we'll look back at those primitive cultures and say, oh, look how foolish they are. But you know what they have that this culture doesn't have? The fear of the Lord, the fear of the creator, the fear of the wrath of God. Now, they're offering the wrong sacrifices, unacceptable sacrifices to God because they're coming out of their own resources. They're refusing the sacrifice that the Lord has provided in his own son. 
But they do have a fear. And this culture has no fear. If they had any fear of the Lord, they would not mock him like they do. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom so that we will run to him for shelter and find our shelter in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the second prayer request, which is that we need to pray for and pursue mercy, grace. You see, the fear of the Lord in a born-again heart, in a regenerated soul, the fear of the Lord produces repentance. But it begins in verse 13 by saying, return, O Lord, have pity on your servants, have mercy. And it's interesting, literally it says, turn back, God. You see, that's what, you have to start there. In your fear of the Lord, you have to recognize that because of your sin, he cannot have fellowship with you. And according to the words of scripture, his back is turned to you. You remember what Jesus said on the cross, as he took our sins upon himself, as our sinless, perfect sacrifice, as he had our sins imputed to himself, and he bore, there, bore our sins there on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you turned your back on me? He suffered that in our place so that God will turn towards us because our sins have been punished there at the cross and we are reconciled and God has accepted his sacrifice and proven it by raising him from the dead. Pray for mercy. Live by grace. Cry out to God daily for mercy and grace so that you can show mercy and grace to others. The resurrection shows that we are reconciled to God because of what Christ has done. So that we know when we cry out to dwell in the eternal, to dwell in God, we can say with David in Psalm 23, I surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of what Christ has done for me, the good shepherd. Third prayer request, pray for and pursue satisfaction in the Lord. Look at verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. How can people be, rejoice and be glad all their days in, with facing the reality of death? Only because death has been defeated. Instead of our days being full of moaning and trouble and sorrow and fading and withering, our lives, even at the end of our lives, even in our frailest state, can be full of rejoicing and gladness. Mentions that we rejoice not in our circumstances. What do we rejoice in? In his steadfast love. Satisfy us, he says, in your steadfast love. Remember, every time I'm going to keep reminding you so that it's burned into your memory that when you see steadfast love in these Psalms, it's talking about God's covenant love. The love that he has committed himself to by the covenant of grace. The love, the, the, the commitment that was put in place through the death of Christ on the cross, which bound you to God the Father forever. His promises belong to you by his commitment. And his covenant. We know that his love is going to be there tomorrow. It's going to be there 10 years from now. It's going to be there 50 years from now. It's going to be there for all eternity because God has promised that those who are covenanted to him through the blood of Christ will belong to him forever. 
and no one can snatch them out of his hands. So we rejoice in this steadfast love, this covenant love that God has for his people. It is amazing that the only place you can find shelter from the wrath of God is in the grace of God, in his very presence. And he goes on to say in verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Do you know what this prayer is? He says, you know, show me your work, Lord. Show me your glory in what you have done. It's the same exact prayer request that he had on the mountain when he said to God, show me your glory. Remember, he's praying for satisfaction here. Lord, satisfy me in your steadfast love and satisfy me by showing me your glory. Open my eyes to see how great and glorious you are because that is where my soul is deeply satisfied. Nothing in this world can satisfy us in that place of our soul where we want to be satisfied by a vision of the glory of God. Pray for satisfaction in the Lord. And finally, pray for eternal significance to what you do in this life. Pray for eternal significance in what you do in this life. Listen to the prayer at the very end. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's actually an amazing prayer request, saying, Lord, let what I do in this short, hard life, let it have eternal significance. Lord, you make my life significant. And that is such a huge leap forward in your spiritual growth and maturity is when you're able to say, I don't care what the world thinks of me. I don't care what labels, what titles, what possessions the world says I have to have to have a significant life. I don't care what I have to look like or how I have to talk or how I have to relate to people in order to be significant, to have meaning and purpose in my life by the world's standards. I can put all that aside and say, Lord, establish the work of my hands in your sight. You think about Moses. I mean, like I said, his life got really hard after Numbers chapter 13. Watched a whole generation of people die in front of him. And then he had to die in the wilderness and was unable to lead the people into the promised land, which was his main calling. And I'm sure at this point, if this is where he is in his life, he's saying, what significance does my life have? I've failed. I'm going to be remembered as a failure. But he prays and said, Lord, establish the work of my hands. And we can look back easily. I mean, who was more important in the history of redemption and the history of Scripture than Moses as the mediator of the first covenant? But we know that from God's eternal perspective, not the world's perspective. Dwelling in the Lord will enable you to measure the significance of your life and your accomplishments from God's perspective, from his eternal perspective, instead of the world's perspective. There was a missionary named C.H. Studd who was a stud of a missionary. <laughs> and he wrote a poem, probably the one that stuck with us the most. You probably have heard this before. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's his way. That's his paraphrase of what our Lord Jesus said. Store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Work for eternal significance. Not the significance that this world applauds and rewards. And this promise is given. Don't ever lose hold of this promise. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 is Paul's great treatise on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, and particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says at the end of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, because Christ is risen from the dead, listen to this. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Pray for eternal significance to your life. Just again, go back to the key promise of this psalm, the key prayer request of Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, so teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. That's not an arithmetic lesson. That's a theological lesson. It's a worldview lesson. Life is hard. Life is short. But Jesus is coming soon. You know, it's the one other place where that analogy of a day being like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, that shows up at the end of Scripture. Shows up in the writing of Peter. And there he's not talking about how short our life is. He's talking about how short the time is until Christ comes again to bring the fullness of our salvation. And so I want to end on that promise. 1 Peter chapter 3. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Amen. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, not only is our past cleansed and resolved as we look at it in hindsight from your eternal perspective, but our future is also sure and certain and coming soon. Lord, I pray that our dwelling upon the words of Psalm 90 will enable us to pray more effectively as Moses prayed so that we would learn to dwell in you, that we would learn to use the means of grace that you have given to your church so that we can grasp onto what is eternal, to who is eternal, the one who is both our creator and our redeemer. And Lord, may our eternal perspective keep us focused clearly on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ when all of your promises will come true and all that is hard about life will be taken away. And life will not be short, but we will dwell in your house forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.